Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Up first in Controversies and Nontroversies, a new documentary about the struggles of the mostly unprofessional, often underaged actors in Larry Clark and Harmony Corinne's controversial 1995 indie hit, Kids, is making waves on the festival circuit this year. Hamilton Harris, one of the stars of the film, has been trying to get this documentary uh, off the ground for years. It depicts the set of kids as something of a bacchanal. Underage performers filmed in the nude, drugs and alcohol on set, the whole nine yards. Uh, and it suggests that these younger performers were taken advantage of. Uh, two of the kids from kids would die not much younger than kids, one from suicide, another from a drug overdose. Uh, as Harris put it, quote, you can take a person out of the ghetto, but you can't take the ghetto out of a person. And to me, ghetto refers to the mental and emotional trauma we went through, end quote. Um, the question of how directors handle young, inexperienced actors is a crucial one, especially when depicting something as debauched as the drug and sex-infused world of Clark's movies. You can also see Bully for an example of this. Uh, and it's an argument that came up recently with the rollout of Netflix's Cuties, which depicted a troupe of young girls dancing in hypersexualized ways. Um, yes, that depiction was negative, but there's still the issue of young actors being asked to perform that way at all and what it does to them. Uh, cinema and television are basically inherently different from other forms of artistic expression insofar as you need someone to actually depict the thing that happening that's happening, even if you are depicting it negatively, even if you think it is terrible and horrible. Um, Peter, what is, what's the best way to protect younger performers from being exploited in pictures like this? I mean, I like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure how to walk that tightrope between demanding authenticity from something like kids uh, and protecting the people who are making it while also making a thing that is is real and worth watching. Yeah, I, I agree. It's very difficult. And I think, you know, in some ways I would take issue with your question just a little bit um, because it sort of assumes that there is, uh, that exploitation is inherent to the, to the business. And I think that you know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, we can argue about the circumstances of Clark's film in particular, uh, but even one of the, the kids who, um, you know, very tragically uh, ended up um, taking his own life uh, later after this film had had film opportunities as a result of uh, being a part of this movie. And in fact, this was the movie that launched the career of Rosario Dawson and Chloe Svenny, right? And so it wasn't as if no one involved with the film sort of ended up doing doing well uh, after it, right? And so, yes, the outcomes uh, differ for different people differed. Um, I, again, that's not to defend uh, uh, Clark's film or everything that's in it or all of the practices there. And I think it's especially difficult uh, when you're working at that very low budget level where there's just not going to be an opportunity to hire, you know, an expensive array of consultants and sort of and to set up uh, sets, right, that are just going to be super comfortable for everyone every minute because a a lot of it is just kind of run and gun. That's the nature of this sort of filmmaking. And yet... And yet I would say uh, that there is somebody who has shown um, a path forward on on exactly that kind of filmmaking, and that's Chloe Zhao, whose first couple of films, uh, and then Nomadland, but in particular her first two films, Songs My Brothers Taught Me and The Writer, were made for extremely low budgets. They are slice-of-life movies um, that depict things that are real-ish, 
right? And so often using uh, what she calls first-time performers, unprofessional actors, people who are unlikely in many cases to go on to become um, to go on to become professional actors on their own. And one of the things that she has done is to say that, look, if these movies make money, uh, there are agreements in place to cut the people in the films and in the communities that I am coming into who are sharing their lives with me, we are going to cut them in. And so that's something that she has prioritized from the very beginning. And I think that that's some place that you can start, at least, is to say, look, you know, maybe these movies won't make money. Maybe they will eventually. But if they do, um, as was the case with kids, and that seems to be one of the gripes here, was that Larry Clark made a bunch of money when his very low budget film ended up making 20 million or so at the box office. Uh, you can say up front, look, if there's profit to be made, if this is going to be successful, we are going to pay back the community for letting us come into your world and for sharing your lives with us and with the viewers. Well, that kind of, uh, that's all well and good. That's not, money's nice. I don't want to, you know, look look askance at, at people getting money. But it's kind of beside the point. I mean, the, the, the issue here isn't so much the financial exploitation as the uh, mental and emotional difficulties that making this sort of movie and then having it broadcast to the world, um, I mean, the variety you know, piece the strain that puts mention, on people did mention some concerns about uh, who got payouts. And sure, who didn't. undoubtedly. And it undoubtedly. does seem like even if those aren't the only concerns, those loom over uh, some of the other concerns. Again, not not the only concerns, um, but I do think that that paying people for work um, and cutting them into you know uh, to the economic success of these kinds of projects. Um, again, it's not it's not the only thing that you can do. It's not the only thing you should do. It's not necessarily enough, but it's something to think about and a way to sort of start saying, look, this is a when we're coming in and filming a community, it's a it's a community project and we're all going to be in it together. Uh, Alyssa, well, I, I noticed some of the chatter around uh, this film on Twitter. Um, a, a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, no, no, no crap. Larry Clark was exploiting these kids. Huh? Like, well, whoever could have imagined that sort of thing. And it, I, 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 I don't want to be dismissive of that point of view because I'm sure there were people at the time who, you know, uh, were, were, were calling him and this movie out. But it also felt, it almost felt to me as if we were having a rehash of the same arguments from the 90s in which a lot of people on the right were saying, how can you make a movie like this? This is terrible for the kids in kids. Like, it's not it's not just that this is exploitative and, you know, uh, prurient to watch on the screen. It's bad for them. Yeah, I think a, a really interesting question that's kind of sparked by this documentary and the Variety article that you mentioned about it is, sort of what counts as authenticity? Like, what is authentic when you're talking about kids and boundary pushing in any given generation? Because the, you know, the actor who's been trying to get this documentary made has said that he felt like Clark and Corrine presented a lot of the sort of risky, ugly behavior in the community that they were trying to capture, but didn't capture the sort of community building that was happening among those kids, the way they were acting as a surrogate family for each other, some of the sort of sweeter stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the controversy about cuties, which we have discussed on this podcast, was that, you know, that's a movie that very much is about you know, the sort of tricky lines that young kids um, in, you know, contemporary France are walking where 
there are sort of messages about ways in which it's acceptable for young girls to be cute and pseudosexual, but there's also just a very clear line that some kids understand kind of instinctively or through sort of cultural assimilation how to navigate, and that some kids end up tipping over because they don't quite understand the line. And part of what's interesting about that movie is that it actually kind of affirms that for the most part about cuties, I'm saying, is that it actually kind of affirms that, yeah, it might be uncomfortable to watch kids in a dance troupe doing sort of sexualized routines, but also that most of the kids are kind of all right, that they do pick up the line at some point, that they aren't, that all kids are not necessarily engaging in super dangerous behavior. Um, And there is a, you know, the flip side of the moral panic over kids is kids presenting itself as sort of an authentic slice of like Americana. You know, most kids in the 90s were not actually doing hardcore drugs and having unprotected sex, <laughs> you know. It, yeah, but more of them than the, than now, uh, according, yes, to the, <laughs> according to the statistics. Yes, certainly it was the case that more kids were using drugs and having risky sex. The teen pregnancy rate was higher. Um, but it's, you know, there there has always been an extent to which these supposedly sort of authentic or realistic movies about kids and moral panics about the state of childhood kind of feed off each other. Um, we haven't talked about the HBO Max series Generation, which as far as I can tell, like basically nobody is watching, um, which is sort of a shame because it is a, it has some things in common with both kids and um and cuties in the sense that it is about the sort of intimate lives of teenagers. There is sort of a teen pregnancy subplot. You got a teenage character who's on Grinder. But one of the things that is interesting about the show is that it presents this sort of boundary pushing as both something that kids do and something that is often checked fairly successfully by the intervention of caring adults, of kids who are smart and want to take care of each other. Um, and so... You know, I think that there are, you know, there are, especially on larger productions, like now fairly well-established ways of making sure that kids are, you know, not alone with, um, that there is sort of supervision for kids on set, that there are limited working hours. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think that especially in mainstream productions, there are kind of checks on the things that kids are asked to do. Um, And so those norms do exist, um, you know, and it's always going to be a little different on totally indie production stuff that is working, you know, is being produced outside the studio system, um, you know, sometimes deliberately, stuff that intends to be sort of boundary pushing. And ultimately, you know, it's like parents have to feel, you know, a lot depends on whether kids have and child actors have parents who retain enough perspective to draw some lines and say, maybe this isn't worth it. And I think one of the things that is really hard about Hollywood as an industry is that it disincentivizes that kind of line drawing and walking away. Um, And for kids who were in the position that some of these young adults and children were on the making of kids, they may not have that kind of parental involvement. And, you know, I think an ethical director now would probably think a lot more seriously about, you know, whether kids that age in those sort of vulnerable life circumstances 
can fully comprehend or consent to both their involvement in a project like that one and the after effects. And that's probably a good conversation to have. I mean, I, I, I think that's right, that it is especially hard um, in a case like the movie Kids, where the uh, child actors, the young adults who were involved, uh, were in many cases leading genuinely difficult lives, um, you know, a uh, often living, you know, quasi street lives. They were runaways. They were, they did not have stable home lives. They were doing drugs already that didn't start, you know, when Larry Clark pointed a camera at them. Um, and so, uh, you know, not to say that, uh, not to say that, that, uh, doing drugs when you're a teenager is always a, a path to ruination, but these, these, um, the people who the community he came into, was not one that was built out of uh, stable or traditional families and often was, in fact, people who had uh, had come from difficult and, and broken homes and had sort of banded together with other people their age as a result. Uh, Peter is wrong. Drugs are bad, kids. Don't do the drugs. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a, uh, is it a controversy or a non-troversy uh, that younger pro- for performers are not protected to a greater degree or that, you know, specifically you know, the movie Kids is, is, uh, is a bad thing that we should, uh, should not be, be praising at this point? Peter. I don't know, man. I mean, certainly some people think it's a controversy. Uh, I it probably look. Larry Clark's film was legitimately controversial. I remember th- uh, the discussion about it in the 1990s when I was a teenager. Um, in I was interested in seeing the film in part because it was controversial. Um, so I will say that uh, that it remains controversial just because of the subject matter and the method that it was uh, by which it was created. Alyssa. Yeah, I think that how to keep kids safe on sets is sort of an ongoing source of uh, discussion and controversy. And I also think the tendency to create treat the authentic lives of teenagers and children as if they're, you know, sort of inherently scandalous, um, something that movies like Eighth Grade, that Lady Bird, et cetera, have sort of successfully pushed back against um, is also kind of controversial. It's controversy, and we look forward to our uh, brave new world in which all of our child performers are created by computers and inserted digitally into films. Uh, Actually, they're going to be played by old actors who have just been de-aged into their teenage selves. I'm really looking forward to teenage Robert Downey Jr. returning to the big screen. Yes. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we will have a bonus members-only episode about our favorite movies based on plays. Uh, some jerk on Twitter suggested that it's impossible to uh, have a great play come from a, or have a great movie come from a play. And we have decided to feed the trolls and educate him uh, and explain to you why this is bunk. And now on to the main event, In the Heights. Uh, full disclosure, I long ago gave up trying to review musicals because I simply do not understand musicals. Uh, it's not just that I don't enjoy them, though I don't. Uh, I, I simply don't get them. I do not, I do not grok them, as they say. Um, I, I don't know how to talk about them, and I don't know how to write about them. I, I don't know what constitutes a good musical from a bad musical. I don't know what good dancing is or bad dancing. I don't know what good singing is. This is a reason why I can't watch American Idol, because
because the bad singers and the good singers all sound exactly the same to me. Um, uh, so this is why I am handing off the proper review of this film to our good friend Alyssa, uh, who could discuss not only In the Heights as a movie and as a musical, but also its relationship to the Broadway play. Alyssa, go. Sure. Um, so In the Heights is John M. Chu's adaptation of the 2005 stage musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda, better known to most of you as the guy responsible for Hamilton, and Kiaria Alegria Hudes, who went on to win the Pulitzer, the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Um, and one thing I think is useful to remember while discussing this um, sort of as a musical, especially in relationship to Miranda's later and better known work, is that this is partially something he wrote sophomore year in college. And so keeping that in mind and seeing it as sort of an amazingly precocious undergraduate accomplishment um, kind of contextualizes it, uh, which doesn't necessarily excuse the flaws in the plot. But um, the show, which chronicles the minor misadventures and big loves of a group of Washington Heights residents during a summer that includes a blackout, a winning lottery ticket, and a period of rising gentrification, was originally supposed to be released last year. But in a way, this already sweet story feels even more poignant and persistent as a kind of post-pandemic public service service announcement for the joys of living in a tight-knit urban community. Um, I think that one of the real strengths of this is its cast, um, most of whom I think your average audience, especially a non-Broadway theater-going audience, may not know. Um, Anthony Ramos, who starred in earlier stage productions of In the Heights as Sunny, um, takes over Miranda's lead role as Usnavi, a Dominican immigrant bodega owner who dreams of restarting his father's old beach bar back on the island. Um, some of you may remember Corey Hawkins from um, Straight Outta Compton, where he played Dr. Dre. I think he is one of the real high points of the cast here as Benny, a dispatcher at the local local cab company and Usnavi's best friend. We've got Melissa Barrera as an aspiring fashion designer, uh, Vanessa, who's Usnavi's love interest, Leslie Grace, who's probably the weak link among the four younger actors as Nina, who's the neighborhood overachiever. Um, and then in terms of sort of older actors who folks should know, I hope at least, um, you have Jimmy Smits as Nina's father and Benny's boss and um, Daphne Rubin Vega as the local salon owner, Daniela. Um, I really think that the huge strength of this movie is the charm of its cast. And it's a lot of fun to see Chu, who directed a number of the Step Up movies before Helming Crazy Rich Asians, uh, bring that experience with dance sequences to the early numbers of In the Heights, which are the movie's strongest. Um, the film drags a lot in the back half, um, but I've seen it twice, and it's honestly nice to see something that's this basically kind and that looks just this lovely on a big screen again. Um, Sunny, after Peter and I saw it in the Heights, we took bets on when in the movie you'd either walk out of the theater or throw your remote at the screen and discuss. So I am not going to start with you. Uh, Peter, I was actually surprised by how much this movie charmed you. So I was hoping you could start off by telling us why. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I should break out into song to explain because it's just like I've got some feelings and I need to share them. And that's what this movie is about is is that when you have those feelings, oh, you... God. You, yeah, it's, you... It's worse than hey, I thought. Hey, Sonny, I've got some thoughts. No, it's... <laughs> It's, I'm not going to go any further than That's that. That's about as good um, as the singing in this movie. <laughs> no, um, so I, like Sonny, am not a big fan of musicals, though I would say that I am not quite as deeply opposed to the form or or confused by it as Sonny is. I grew up watching classic movie musicals. I even played the uh, 
the the constable in Fiddler on the Roof in college. It was the largest speaking role that did not require any significant singing because, in fact, I cannot sing. And also they moved me to the back of the dance line even in the sequence where the constable was supposed to be leading the dancing um, because I can't dance either. So it's not, in in a lot of ways, this sort of movie isn't for me. And yet I, I, I did find it pretty charming and, and even more so uh, after I left the theater. I would say that I enjoyed most of it while watching it, although I think it's a little bit too long. It drags um, in the middle, especially sort of the second quarter of the film. Um, there's, it's just, it's it's probably about 15 or 20 minutes too long. But ultimately, this is, this is a, a cleverly made uh, cinematic adaptation of a, of a stage play. And so one of the things I really liked, you mentioned just sort of the charm of the performers, Alyssa, but one of the things I really liked was how, um, how, how truly cinematic it felt. And I, I often find movie adaptations of stage plays just these, even if they are kind of fundamentally doing things that you couldn't do on, on stage, they are still stuck in a stage mode of just sort of like, here is, here is a box that we're pointing a camera at and people are, you know, using the set and dancing through it. And there's maybe color changes to kind of accentuate what's going on. But ultimately it's just sort of, this is the play, but with a little bit better production, you know, a, a little bit more realistic production design. And that's not what this was at all. And in fact, you know, the movie starts with this idea that, uh, right, there's there's music in the streets. And then you have this bit where, uh, you know, where Yosnavi's walking through uh, through his block. And the movie, and he's singing, of course, because he's got feelings. And people sing when they have feelings in movies like this. Uh, and the, and Chu starts editing in in subtle but, like, kind of fun and clever ways to the to the music, right? It's not that he has decided to make it a big dance number. What he's done is to make the movie follow the patterns of the music and of the singing. And I thought that that stuff actually worked really well for the most part. Um, it, the movie works least well when it does much more sort of conventional uh, uh, stage, stagey uh, 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 musical stuff. And I would say in particular the number in the barbershop, um, maybe 25 minutes into the movie, uh, which I understand is necessary for the plot um, and, and does some some plot business, but it's just like, oh, here we've just taken the barbershop and basically shot it not quite from one angle, but from not very many angles. And like the the funniest thing in there is when the hairpiece mannequins start kind of singing uh, along. But again, that's a gag that could have appeared on stage. And yeah. all of those gags, all, all of the kind of gag work in that scene is very stagey. And that's the moment where I suspected if Sonny was going to just peace out, that would be it because it's a bunch of ladies talking about hair stuff and the bit like I think it kind of drags and it kind of it doesn't work super well on screen but later in the movie you get all of these really nicely intimate bits especially once they move inside uh, for an indoor dinner party and then the, the power goes out and it becomes very just very intimate in a way that that a play cannot be um, and that only movies can be in and you combine that with the just the deep, earnest charms of the story and the characters. And I ended up really kind of, um, it's not a movie that I want to go watch 10 times again, but it's a movie that I feel like I can recommend. I can say this is well done. It is, it's good for what it is. And it even kind of brought me into its world. And I, I left thinking, huh, I'm walking down the street. 
maybe I'm going to burst into song. It's worth noting sort of a couple of things about the transition from stage to screen for this. Um, And I actually saw In the Heights on Broadway um, when it was initially produced there with Miranda in the lead role. Um, And so I have I've actually twice seen Broadway shows that Miranda has starred in and then seen adaptations where someone else is in the lead role. I've seen Hamilton on Broadway with him and with several other actors playing Hamilton. And almost universally, um, Miranda's work gets better when someone else plays the lead role. Um, He is a really talented writer. He's a reasonably talented rapper. He cannot sing. And so um, someone like Anthony Ramos, who um, can do the sort of rapping parts of his dialogue that are conversational, but who can also sing better than Miranda can, really does elevate his roles a little bit. Um, It's also worth noting the book um, for the show, which in musical parlance means sort of the plotting and dialogue that is not being sung, has always been considered the weak part of In the Heights. Um, Hamilton is, um, as a musical, is sung through, which means there is not dialogue outside of the songs. and is stronger for it. Um, And here the plot, in the transition from stage to screen, the plot has been reconfigured a little bit. In the original stage show, the sort of subplot about dreamers um, is not, it's not in the stage show. Um, It does exist here. Um, Abuela Claudia's death occurs at a different point in the show, as does the revelation um, that she has the winning lottery ticket, um, which changes, and I actually think that as corny and as sort of poorly executed as I found the interjection of the stuff about the dreamers, um, the general sort of changes to the pacing of the show are definitely an improvement, if not capable of sort of wrapping things up as quickly as they need to be wrapped up um, in the kind of back I'm, half. I'm of the sorry. Show. I, I, can I can I just interject here? The pacing of this is better than the stage show. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, right, Sonny, I'm, ba- I'm Sonny, I, I want to hear what you have to, to say about this. And ideally, I would like you to wrap through your response. Yeah, no, I mean, I again, I just don't I don't get musicals. I don't uh, I, I wrote about this once before that I went to my my wife, my lovely wife for my birthday one year, got me tickets to see the Book of Mormon at the Kennedy Center. And if there's ever been a musical stage show that was designed to appeal to me specifically, it's the the musical by the guys who do South Park uh, about funny Mormons. Like that, it's like it's like you, it's like a perfect mashup of my 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 various interests. And uh, I was just bored out of my mind. I just like I don't, I don't, it it does nothing. It, Did you it, feel nothing, the same none way? None of it does anything about- for me. Uh, Team America, which is a, a movie musical, no, because, or South Park no, be, the musical. No, because it's very interesting. Because I, I have, I have less of an issue with musicals when they are animated uh, than when they are live action. For some reason, uh, for I, like a musical cartoon, I, I, I get it. That that's fine. It it works for me. Um, but usually, those are also the musical numbers are also. Uh, shorter and there's greater distance between them. Mm, it's not just yeah. it's not just all music. Part of the problem, and I I, I may have realized this. So this movie would have been better if it was all puppets, is what you're saying. I would have I would have at least found it more interesting visually. I'm sure because I would have been watching the puppets and been like, oh, that's interesting work instead of watching people dance, which is the most boring thing in the world to me. Uh, the the what is what is. Uh, one one problem I have with musicals is just that I can't I can't 
track dialogue that is sung. Mm. This is this was something I was going to ask you about because I can't do it. Peter and I were talking about this um, after the critic screening we saw, and I am someone who listens to music, if not entirely for lyrics, considerably for the lyrics. Um, I you know I really like sort of faster-paced Southern hip-hop because of the wordplay and the sort of patter. Um, And I have, you know, I have Hamilton and this show and pretty much any musical that I've watched, you know, or listened to a couple times memorized. Like, I just have a very finely tuned ear for lyrics. And I think that if you don't have that, it makes sense that musicals are just hard to follow or to pick up, you know, and because... One of the things that Miranda does really well is insert sort of conversational wordplay into his lyrics writing. Um, he one thing in the Hamilton um, score and lyrics is that there's a lot of sort of syncopating um, consonants in multiple lines of um, of dial- of lyrics. There are there's you know a certain amount of punning. And so if those nuances don't come through and the sort of cleverness and love of language don't emerge, then I can totally understand how this is less yeah. appealing. This is this is why I, I prefer Moana to this, frankly. Like Moana, which I've had to watch, uh, I don't know, a dozen times because I have a, a small, young uh, daughter. You know, it, it, like I, I, I can... I, A, the story is just easier to follow, but B, also the singing is just, it's it's easier for me to to, to get and get into, um, but also that might be a function of repetition, so who knows. Yeah, so um, actually, I, I, I noting to, that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the, um, right, the songs right. yeah, that's, for that's why I, well. That's why I yeah. bring up Moana. I just wanted to, to sort of pull out a, a point that you have like uh, circled around a bunch of times, uh, Alyssa, that we talked about after the screening, which is just how verbally specific this movie is and how unique it is in being uh, filled with fairly complex English language um, references, allusions, uh, rhymes, meter, right? All of this, right? In a, in a world in which movies, dialogue in movies has been simplified and simplified and simplified to the point where it just doesn't matter because the movies are designed to be sold to audiences that don't speak English. And so you don't want anything that is too complex or too difficult to translate. You want, in fact, movies where the dialogue doesn't really matter at all and where the words, the specific words are not very important. And so one of the things I really appreciated about this movie was that even though, yes, I, like Sonny, actually have a little bit of trouble tracking some of the dialogue when it is sung. Um, I, I tend to listen to voices as instruments, sort of as, as uh, when, I mean, I, I'm a big music nerd, but I don't listen, to, I don't hear lyrics the same way I think as you do, Alyssa. I sort of hear, I hear the timbre of the voice rather than the specific words in many cases. But in this movie, I found it most of the time I could basically track the, track the words and the language is quite complex and quite specific in a way that is genuinely unusual for a big studio film um, in America these days because so many of them are just designed to be sold to, to foreign audiences where English is uh, not something that they care about or, or, or speak um, or, or speak in a you know uh, way that is where, where complex language is um, not what is desired by the film-going audiences. 
Yeah, and Sunny, I know you find dance boring. I don't. Um, but again, the dance routines here are very culturally specific. They involve a, a lot of sort of, you know, Chu uses some of the kind of street dance stuff that he used in um, the Step Up movies. But you have, a, you know, an interesting combination of breakdancing and salsa and merengue and styles that borrow from all of the very specific cultural traditions of the characters. Um in a way that is really fun to see kind of play together, especially in the pool sequence, which has gotten a lot of attention um, because it's you know something that was technically difficult to pull off, but also because it takes all of those styles um, and then kind of turns them into an Esther Williams style water ballet um, in a way that, you know, puts sort of old Hollywood in conversation with what people hope new Hollywood is going to be like. Um, and I think that sequence is just very appealing, not least because it looks cool, um, but because it's just such a nice showcase for so many of the characters. Um, and again, it's sort of cinematic, right? I mean, you get the sort of close-in routines. It's, uh, it's again, cinematic, and like you said, it is an explicit callback to yep. old Hollywood musicals and dance routines. Yes. Um, Sonny, I'm actually curious. Did you see this in a theater? It's playing on HBO Max, so I don't know how you watched it. No, I it. watched it on HBO Max. I really think that while... I'm, I'm not saying I think you would enjoy this movie, seeing it in a theater, that you would suddenly figure it out and like your heart would burst into burst into uh, to dance somehow or another. Um, but I do think that this movie really uh, plays much better on a big screen than on a small screen and plays uh, much better with an audience than it does sitting at home alone on your couch. What audience? Let's look at the box office numbers. They're yes. very bad, very soft for In the Heights, which has done worse than uh, I think almost any of the other HBO Max WB releases since the uh, since the vaccines I mean, have rolled out. Except who for those who wish me dead, did not do well. Except for those who wish me dead. No yeah. Uh, but the, uh, you know, it, it did half the box office of Cruella, which is also available at home. Uh, it is, it did. Uh, yeah, it did, did about three $11 or four, million dollars over the weekend after did, uh, a project uh, versus a projected about 20 million. $4 million less than uh, Tom and Jerry, which came out in February, the end of February. Yeah. Uh, what's what's going on with the box office here? Why aren't people showing up for this wonderful, f f as, I, as, as I tweeted, a movie that you really get to endure the joy of humanity uh, <laughs> while while watching it? Um, I will say, so I, um, I'm actually on my way home from a vacation, and my husband and I stopped to see it. Um, uh, before we got back to the house. And there was a pretty good sort of weekday adult crowd in our local indie theater for it. Um, you know, it wasn't full. There's still, you know, people are clearly spacing themselves out seating wise, but there were a bunch of retired folks or, you know, the older people there seeing it. Um, you know, look, it's, in the Heights, you know, won a bunch of Tonys, but was not the kind of sensation that Hamilton was. Um, its regional tours were a long time ago at this point. Um, so it's not as if people, you know, feel some sort of, like who couldn't catch it either in New York or on regional tour or feel like an urgency to see it. Um, you know, the most famous person in it is Jimmy Smits, and I adore Jimmy Smits, but I don't know that Jimmy Smits is like a massive box office draw. Um 
I mean, the really box office draw here is Lynn manuel Miranda's name. Yeah. And, and it's not which has clear how big a, yeah. a national, right? He's the plays, because, his, Hamilton did very, very well and yeah. has a national presence. But of course, it, it has done well as a play, which is yeah. very different than playing, you know, it, it plays in what, at, at most a, a handful of, of stages at any given time versus this is playing on thousands and thousands of screens. And I will say, I mean, I do not know, I would have to try and research this, I don't know how often In the Heights is performed in high schools, and none of the songs have become sort of standards or kind of spin-off torch songs in a way that songs from a lot of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals have, the stuff that's adapted from Disney, etc. Um, there is not necessarily like a signature number here that people hear In the Heights and think, oh yeah, that song. Um and so I think in the absence of, you know, sort of a recent buzz about it, um, you know, it becoming a high school standard where teenagers are ex- who are musical theater nerds are excited to see it on screen. Um, the absence of a big star, you know, I mean, musical theater in America right now does not necessarily have the big national draw that it did when like, Cats and Phantom of the Opera and stuff were tearing up Broadway and running for decades. So, you know, if this is a test of Miranda's kind of box office appeal and that proves to be limited, that's okay. I'm excited for him to go write his next genius musical. Um, America has passed the test. Thumbs down to Lin-Manuel Miranda from America. All right. Ah, you're just you're just a hateful old man, Sonny. Uh, that is true, but irrelevant. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Look, In Sonny, the Heights? Look, Sonny, some people, when they have feelings, they tweet them, and other people sing them. And Peter. you're a tweeter, not a singer. I think I liked it. Thumbs up. See, again, that's about as good as anything in In the Heights, which I don't understand why anybody thinks it's good. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Uh, thumbs down, but I'm not the target audience. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the best movies based on plays. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. We'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. Once again, see you guys next week. Next week.